Uh, good morning, Grace Covenant in Athens. I'm really glad to be here. As Harold mentioned, my name is Roy McDaniel. Uh, I have my son Micah here with me this morning as well. Um, my wife, Becky, my other children, I have a daughter named Mary Grace and a son named Luke as well. And they stayed in the Westminster this morning. But we're really, really happy to be here. Um, thank you for welcoming me. Um, again, it's testifies to our unity in Christ, it testifies to our common love of Jesus, so we're, we're glad to be here. I'm going to preach this morning from Psalm 13, verses 1 through 6, it's the whole of Psalm 13, so you can turn to Psalm 13, if you like. Um, I love the Psalms, I think lots of us love the Psalms, the Psalms have a unique place in the Christian church, uh, they are uniquely woven in the Christian liturgies, they are a prayer book that God gives to us. Um, in all of scripture, God addresses us and calls for a response. But in the Psalms, God is giving us a response. He's giving us prayers. He's giving us words to pray back to Him. In my understanding, the Psalms are something like braces. Um, you have braces because you want to straight some, straighten something out, right? Well, God wants to straighten out our souls. The, Psalm, the Psalms are for spiritual formation. So God gives us these words, words of lament, sometimes, like we'll talk about today, words of praise at other times. He gives us these words to rightly order our souls. It's a means of spiritual formation when we take these prayers and make them our prayers. I'll say one thing about Psalm 13 before I pray and read it. There's a superscription uh, right under the title, or it's basically a title provided. This is part of the inspired text. It says, To the choir master, the Psalm of David. That's an interesting thing. This is a very personal psalm, as we'll see, and yet it's directed to the choir master to be set to music so that all of Israel, all of God's people, even us today, can sing it and make these our words. We are apparently meant to pray like David, to grieve like David is going to grieve here, to pray with and for David. We pray this as followers of the son of David. Jesus Christ, whom David typified. So, with that said, the Psalms being something like braces, and we're praying this as followers of Jesus, I'm going to pray, and then I'll read the Psalm for us. Please join me in prayer. Father God, would you be with us by your Spirit to help us see all the goodness of your Word. You are good, Lord, and you speak to us in love. Help us to see that love. Help us to be formed rightly in our hearts and minds and our souls by these words you teach us to lament well to do so by faith in Jesus we pray in his name Amen Psalm 13 this is the word of God how long O Lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Sometimes, 
sadness is appropriate. Uh, I think of when my first major sadness in life was when my grandfather died. We called him Honey. He passed away. I was sad. No, it was right. It was appropriate that I cried that night. Sometimes sadness is good. It was good that I cried that night. Otherwise, how can I really remember my grandfather with happy memories? You don't process the grief. You can't have. You can enjoy the memories that I have of him. Sometimes sadness is our only option. Sometimes life is just too much. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Think of my dad when Honey passed away, who was his father. My birthday was the next day, and we were celebrating my birthday, and I was receiving a present, so I was excited. I got a bike. I was, I was happy. My dad broke down in tears, because even though it was supposed to be this happy moment, he couldn't control the grief of losing his father. That was his only option. The pain was too new and too real. Sometimes it's appropriate to be sad. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's our only option. For all these times, God has given us a lament. God, in his mercy, has shown us how to lament, how to grieve, how to mourn. There are different genres of psalms, as you probably know. There are hymns, which are psalms of praise. There are psalms of confidence, where someone, usually David, is in trouble, but he insists that God will be good to him. There are psalms of wisdom that invite us to search for wisdom and explore the wisdom woven into God's creation. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are historical psalms that recount all of Israel's story. There are imprecatory psalms that call down curses on Israel's enemies. But by far the most represented genre in the psalms is lament. More About 73 years, about 70 psalms are, can be classified as laments. And really, the Psalter, the book of Psalms as a whole, moves from lament to praise. A lament is a sad and grieving psalm. You could say that it is a psalm of distress and disorientation. Laments usually highlight some problem. There's usually some real threat, like David speaks of enemies here. Anxiety is high in these psalms. And the world seems to be upside down. That's the disorientation. Nothing seems to make sense. Nothing is how it should be. Everything is unjust and unfair. More than that, everything seems to be out of line with God's word. In these psalms, God's commandments are being broken and God's promises seem unfulfilled. Nothing seems to be right. There is this God who speaks in truth, and yet his word does not seem to be defining reality as it should. So, in desperation, the psalmist in these laments cry out for deliverance. They cry out for God to act. They cry out for God to move towards them once again. Psalm 13 is really the perfect example of a psalm of lament. Uh, it has all the different components of lament. If you look at psalms of lament, they have different components, different kind of things that usually uh, typify these psalms. There's usually some kind of call out to God, trying to get God's attention. Like we see here, David in verse 3 says, God, consider me and answer me, O Lord, my God. Remember that you're my God and please pay attention to me. There's usually a reference to God's character in a lament. David here is going to speak of God's steadfast love, and that's normally what laments do. As they lament, they think, God, aren't you good and just? Aren't you full of steadfast love? Aren't you the God of wisdom and God of mercy? There's usually a complaint in Psalms of Lament, and this is prominent. 
there's some threat, there's some enemy, there's some injustice that is being pointed out in these psalms. There are also questions in psalms of laments. David here asks, how long, four different times. And this is how the laments usually go. Because of what the psalmist knows of God's character, and yet because of the very real threat or injustice or danger, it doesn't seem to make sense. And so there are questions. Lord, if, if you are good and loving, then how am I experiencing this? If you're really good, then how are you letting me walk through this? The laments, therefore, often express confusion. There's real confusion about God and about the situation uh, that God is allowing to happen, about the situation the psalmist, usually David, finds himself in. Again, in this psalm, that confusion is evident. David asks, how long? Four different times. According to one commentator, David's complicated line of questioning in verses 1 and 2, it shows a complicated state of soul. A lot of going on is going on in David's heart and mind. He has a, a complicated soul right now. He is in turmoil. He is confused. David's confusion, we should point out, is actually deepened by his faith. And this can happen to us too. It's because of what we believe about God that we have these questions. It's because we believe in his goodness and justice. It's because we believe in his supremacy. It's because we believe that he is redeeming the world in Jesus Christ. That sometimes reality doesn't make sense to us. So we have to cry out, God, what are you doing? Why are you letting me experience this? Why are you letting our world experience this? Why are you letting our country experience this? Why are you letting my loved ones experience this? Whatever it is, because we know God's character and promise, because we know the end of the story in Jesus Christ, sometimes our circumstances can be perplexing. They don't seem to agree with God's character and a promise, at least not in a way that we can see, not in a way that we can reconcile. So we have all these different parts of the uh, laments, Confusion is a, a major element in lament. But a final and very instructive feature of lament that I want to talk about is confidence. These laments, they almost always, with the exception of one, Psalm 88, they almost always end with confidence. As confused as David might be, as perplexed as he is, as much as he is crying out for justice, as much as he seems to be suffering, he almost always ends with some kind of assurance that God will act. God will remember his steadfast love. God will prove true to every word he has spoken. Therefore, David can have confidence. Almost every lament moves from confusion to confidence. And again, the Psalter as a whole moves from confusion to confidence, from lament to praise. There's confidence that the character and promise of God will prevail in the end, no matter how long we might have to wait for it. That the Psalms end in confidence it's really instructive. It's really helpful for us. It reminds us that suffering and death never has a last word for us. We are tied to Jesus Christ. We're united to Jesus Christ by faith. That means that his story is our story. His suffering might be our suffering. His agony on the cross and in the garden might be our agony at times. His confusion might be our confusion. But his victory is our victory. His resurrection is our resurrection. Sin, death, suffering will not get the last word. And so even when we lament, we lament with confidence. And that's really, really instructive. However, it's also instructive that the laments do not rush to that confidence. They sit in the confusion first. They don't just say, oh, you know, I'm suffering, but everything's really fine. It'll be okay. God works all things for good, so this will be fine. Well, 
it is very true that God works all things for good. And, and we say, hallelujah, God works all things for good. We might not imagine how that can be, like when real tragedy happens, like how can God work this out for good? It's okay that we don't know how God works it out for good, but we say with Paul about faith, everything that happens will work out for my salvation. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism tells us. This is what it teaches us. It teaches us that we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head apart from the will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for our salvation. And we say, hallelujah. But that doesn't mean we rush to the hallelujah. We, we can't short-circuit the process. Lament is a process. And for whatever reason, God seems to expect that we'll go through that process. And he seems to desire, to some extent, that we'll go through that process. He is sovereign over all things. Everything that comes to us comes from us comes from his hand. Therefore, he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death sometimes, and he gives us words to help us process the valley of the shadow of death. And we shouldn't short-circuit that. We shouldn't rush to the hallelujah. Even as we say the hallelujah, we don't rush to it. God has plans for our darkness and confusion. God has plans for our agony and anxiety. He is at work through it to do something good in us. Just as Jesus was perfected by his suffering according to Hebrews 5, so also are we. David knew that God works all things out for his good, yet he still cries out and invites us to join him. God knows that he will work all things for good, yet he still gives us the laments. Apparently, we need to lament then. There's no use in pretending that the sin and suffering of this world aren't really that bad. There's no use in pretending that evil isn't real and isn't really evil. There's no use in pretending that the pain doesn't really hurt. God works all things for good, but that doesn't mean that everything is good. God works all things for good, but he is still conquering sin and death and Satan and throwing it out of his new creation because it should not be there. It should not exist. And it's right that we lament those things because God laments those things. He says that they shouldn't exist. So the Psalms overall, they challenge us to wholeheartedly praise. You can't read Psalm 147 or one, you know, any of the Psalms of the end, for instance, without being challenged to praise their whole heart. They challenge us to confidence in adverse circumstances, but they also challenge us to wholehearted lament, and they show us how to lament. So very quickly, I just want to say you know, three quick points after all this introduction. Three quick points about how to lament. We are taught by these psalms to lament before God by faith in Jesus. Lament before God by faith in Jesus. Those are three points. Uh, first of all, like we've been saying, this psalm clearly teaches us to lament. The psalm teaches us, and many other psalms teach us, to name the troubles that we face, to admit the pain, to be honest about the distress and disorientation that we face. Notice how honestly and eloquently David speaks of his trouble. He, he, he's not whining or crying. Okay, this isn't some self-absorbed pity party. Nevertheless, he is still very honestly naming his trouble. David is in trouble. Look at verses 3 and 4. I'll read it again. It says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Death seems to be the trouble that David is facing. It is a very real threat. 
And when you remember David's life, you recognize, oh, yes, this is a very real threat. He's a military commander. More than that, he is anointed king while somebody else is king. And I don't know that much about politics, but I know two kings is bad. All right, one of them is probably going to die. That's how that issue gets resolved, okay? There's going to be bloodshed. And so when David is anointed king while Saul is still king, well, that puts him in danger, and so he's running for his life for a long time. It was God's grace to anoint David as king, right? It's a gift of God's mercy towards David to anoint David as king. It's mercy for David and mercy for Israel. And yet God's grace brings David into a lot of trouble. It marks him out as someone who someone else wants to kill. Saul, the king, wants to kill. David speaks of this. He says, uh, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David faces the threats of death and shame. We face similar threats throughout our lives. The New Testament tells us that we have an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And I don't want to spiritualize all pain. Some of the pain that we face is just physical or social or emotional. Nevertheless, we're in the midst of a very real spiritual battle. And the Psalms teach us to cry out in the middle of that. Just as David cried out when his enemy attacked him. So we are to cry out because we do have an enemy. There is one who opposes Christ in his church. There is one who opposes everyone who names the name of Christ. Therefore, we have an enemy who is too strong for us that we must cry out to God for mercy if we are going to endure. Okay, so David is in trouble. He admits that trouble. David is stressed. He admits his stress. Look at verse 2. It says, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? What, What really is being pictured here is probably David... At night, you know, when all your anxieties seem to come upon you, you know, you're like, the busyness of the day is over, and you're just, just you with your anxieties at this point, or you with whatever. And, and David is, he's taking counsel in his soul. He has some problem that he's recognizing. And, and he is constantly scheming and planning and trying to work it out, because he just can't work it out. No matter how much he thinks about it, he, he can't solve this riddle that he's facing. He, he can't fix his problems. Uh, you know, the hymn we sing about it, he talks about when helpers fail and comforts flee. That is David's situation right now. Like he, he, he's, he's searching for help. He's searching within himself. He's probably asking other people. And he can't find help. He's putting all kinds of counsel in his soul every night because he's facing something that, again, he just can't figure out for himself. And so every night he lies there with anxiety. And every day he wakes up to sorrow. His sleep has not solved his problems either. David is, well, I don't want to call it depression, but it's something like that, right? Like it, It's something like this abiding anxiety that he just can't get away from. That starts in his circumstances, but it's tormenting his soul. It's, it's a problem outside of him, but it's also inside of him. And he's acknowledging both before God. David is also, maybe most importantly, spiritually disoriented, I would say. Look at verse 1. He, he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Um, I, I almost like the courage to say that to God. That, that, that can be blasphemous. right? Like, it can be blasphemous to say this kind of thing, like, God, you've forgotten me. 
Because there is a way in say, of saying that that charges God with being unfaithful to his covenant. There's a way of saying that that charges God with being a liar. And I don't want to say David's doing that here, but he is feeling like God has forgotten him. He feels like God has hidden his face. That's his subjective experience. And so he's bringing that to God. Now, the, fact, the very fact that he's crying out to God with these words means that David is maintaining faithfulness and not committing blasphemy. Okay? Nevertheless, this is a very disheartening phrase when you ask God, like, God, have you forgotten me? Uh, are, you, are you just leaving me to myself and to this world? Or are you just letting my life fall apart right now? We might feel this sometimes. God, God, I have more than I can handle. I have problems that I can't figure out. Where are you? Why aren't you helping me? David is acknowledging that God is actually letting him walk through this. That God is letting him face all these troubles. Again, it's kind of God's grace that gets David into this situation. David is acknowledging that God is taking him to the valley of the shadow of death. Now, we know famously David will confess that God is with him in the valley of the shadow of death. But the valley of the shadow of death is still a really bad place to be. It's not an easy place to be. It's still a painful place to be. And David, in the middle of it, is crying out. Everything seems to be dark. There seems to be no light from God's face. And so verse 3, he's saying, God, please consider and answer me. Please pay attention to me. Please look at me again. Please act for me. David is asking God to quit withdrawing his hand and to intervene into his situation. So David has a twofold promise. He has pain that he is experiencing but he also has all this distance between God's promise and David's perceived reality. Again, God had promised a lot to David. Uh, he anoints him as king, basically saying, David, you're my man. He pours out his spirit on David. Uh, God will later make a covenant with David. We don't know exactly when David sings this song. God will later make a covenant with David that David or one of his sons will always be king in Israel. And God will do good to him. God will call him a son. David is promised adoption. He's promised a kingdom. He has promised victory, and that his victory will be for the good of all of Israel. And yet, what is he facing? He's facing threat after threat after threat. We face this too. We face the reality that God's promise doesn't seem to line up with what we are experiencing. That there seems to be a gap there. And so we should cry out in the same way. Um, I have one of my kids here. I mentioned my other ones. Um, I love my kids. They like to get good stuff, right? Like, everybody likes to enjoy things. So, they really like to go. We, we have, my sister lives in Huntsville as well, so they have cousins that they can go see. I've wanted to have to really manage their expectations. They love to go see their cousins so much that I can only say we're going to go see the Helveston's your cousin if, like, I'm 100% sure that we're going to do it. Because otherwise, like, if they have this promise and an expectation comes out here, there's, there's just a lot of frustration. Uh, it, it, it's pain. And agony, and I don't want to create that because I have to deal with it. Uh, but listen, that, that's not just for kids. Adults, too, we have to manage our expectations about a lot of things, right? Because when you get high expectations and then reality is way down here, there's frustration, there's pain. Well, God knows that. David is experiencing that. God has set David's expectations high, God sets our expectations high. Right? Like he, Jesus tells us, I will always be with you from now to the end of the age. He tells us that in Christ we're justified, sanctified, adopted, glorified. We have the promise that God's Spirit is all, always with us. We have the promise that God considers us His children. How high that raises our expectations and how low our reality 
sometimes is. So what should we do with that? I think we should take a psalm like this and admit our frustration and confusion. We need to learn how to lament, how to faithfully question God's providence. Now again, you, there is definitely a way to unfaithfully question God's providence. But if the psalms are really meant to guide us, and if a lot of other scripture like Habakkuk and Job, if all that's really meant to guide us, then there is certainly a faithful way to question God's providence, like Jesus does on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not whining, we're not wallowing, we're not accusing God. You know, the confession of sin this morning warned us against putting demands upon God, and that's not what I'm telling us to do. Never let, I, I'm telling us to take God's promises, not with what God has clearly promised us. In our reality, and when we see how those don't line up, God seems to invite us to voice that to Him. He seems to invite us by this, these psalms to explore that confusion. There's a way of questioning God's providence that comes from faith, that comes because you are believing in God's goodness and truthfulness. And you have permission, I have permission to cry out to God. You have permission to humbly look to God for His promises and to voice your pain when those promises don't seem to be met. Um, to refer it again to my kids, everybody knows that there's kind of good ways and bad ways to ask questions, right? If you've ever had any kind of leadership or, you know, parented, you know, maybe I'll tell my kids that we're going to do something like, why are we going to do that? And depending on their tone, so that's how I take it, right? Like, if their tone is telling me, hey, Dad, you're stupid, and we know better, why are we doing this? So, well, I get offended, and rightly so, right? But if, if their tone is more humble, and they really just want to know, why are we doing this? Like, where are we going? What's going to happen? Well, I, I'm more sympathetic, right? Like, I, I'm just trying to care for my kids. Like, they're asking out of confidence in me, and I'm trying to care for them. There are two ways we can ask questions of God. We can ask questions that insult God, right? That, that charge Him with not knowing what He's doing. Or we can ask questions like David. They're actually based on faith and trust and confidence that give voice to our complaint because we're believing, precisely because we're believing God's promises and our reality doesn't seem to match. Okay, so we're called to lament by this psalm, but again, we don't just whine. We don't just scream into the void. We are called to lament before God. Okay, so second point, quicker, before God. Uh, notice, we noticed already how honest David is, but notice also how God-centered he is, how God-directed he is. This is not self-absorbed pity party again. David's complaint is very God-centered and God-directed. He is addressing his lament to God, as we see in verse 1. How long, O Lord? And he's crying out, O Lord, my God, in verse 3. He acknowledges the supremacy of God. His whole prayer was based on the assumption that everything is in God's hands. Everything falls out according to God's providence. He acknowledges the goodness of God, especially at the end. His hope is in God's steadfast love. David maintains trust in God and commitment to God when he says, You are my God. You're the Lord, my God. You've made a covenant with me, and I'm in covenant with you. I will be your son, David is saying to God, because I know you will be my father. This is a proper God-centered lament. The result of this God-centered lament is this. It puts David's problems in perspective. That's why I think David can have such confidence at the end. It's because he's had this God-centered lament. David's vision is clouded by his stress. 
the way ours often is. Like when problems come up, it's like we can't see anything beyond our problems. And David can't see it at the beginning here. He can't see anything beyond the threat to his life. And understandably so. We ought to be spiritually nearsighted. We can only see just what's right, what's right in front of us. Whether it's good or bad, we so often tend to see just what's right in front of our face. God-centered lament corrects that vision. So we still see what's right in front of our face, but we see the broader picture as well. Uh, one scholar put it this way. He said, The Psalms put their undeviating understanding of the greatness of the Lord alongside our situations so that we may have a due sense of the correct proportion of things. The Psalms correct our perspective. They give us a better lens through which to see through which to see things because they bring our problems to the throne of God. Through his lament, David comes to see himself, his situation, and his God correctly again. It's easy to be overwhelmed by grief. And, and I'm sure, even in a room, there's not a lot of people in this room, but even in a room, people, this many people, some of you have seen unspeakable grief in your days. More than I've seen, more than I can reckon with, more than I would know how to answer. People suffer. There is suffering in this life. And, and sometimes it is overwhelming. And it's hard to know how even to pray in the middle of that grief. I mean, when your heart is absolutely broken, what do you even say to God? I, what do we say? How can we bring that to Him? I want to suggest that if that happens to you, when that happens to you, use the words of the Psalms. I literally pray these words to God. I, I think this is why God has given them to us. I said the Psalms are something like braces. You can also think of them as something like training wheels. God is helping us move through our grief we can't do by ourselves. He's given these, these words to move us through our grief, to move us through our joys as well, right, in every other circumstance of life. But in the midst, He's moving us through our grief. When we pray these prayers, it gives us words to say to God when words fail us. That doesn't mean that Praying the Psalms will be a quick fix. We'll still be sad. There will still be grief. But when we when we pray the Psalms, because they are so God-centered, it corrects our perspective. It helps us see things rightly and in the right proportion. Through these laments, our feelings will slowly begin to align with reality. Again, like braces you have with your smile. What's it look like? put on the braces, and it slowly aligns things. When we lament with the Psalms, the same happens to us. That's good news. It's good news that our hearts align with reality because our reality is defined by Jesus Christ. Our reality is defined by the gospel. Our reality is defined by the obedience and death and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, we are never forgotten, and God's face will eternally shine on us. So, Lastly, we lament, we lament before God, we lament by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice David's hope and his confidence in verses 5 and 6. It almost seems to come from nowhere, but it's like he, he struggled and he's wrestled and now he remembers. He says, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Notice the future verb tense. He fully expects to rejoice. He fully expects salvation because he knows God's character and promise. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Notice again the verb tense, the, the perfect 
tense, where there's this past action that has ongoing implications. The Lord has dealt down with me. He has done something in the past that has defined my future forever. He has done something in the past that can't be taken away, that won't be removed, that he will not forget. David knew that the Lord had dealt bountifully me. Again, again, think of what David had from the Lord, his God. He had been chosen by God, called by God, entrusted with the kingdom. He had been protected by God. He had been anointed and filled with the Spirit. He had been forgiven by God again and again, as we know well. He had been called a son by God. And when he wrestled through his troubles, he seems to remember all of this that the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. When we wrestle, we will remember all that we have in Jesus. It might not come quickly, but we surely won't remember if we don't wrestle. If we don't wrestle with our pain and sorrow like this, we won't remember that we are called by God, protected by him, sealed with his spirit, justified, sanctified, adopted, glorified already because... We are tied to Christ and raised up with Christ. Ephesians tells us that we are already seated with Him in the heavenly places. By giving us Jesus Christ, by uniting us to Christ, the Lord has dealt bountifully with us. He will not forget it. And it cannot be taken away. And we might forget it. And our vision of that truth might be obscured by our pain, by the sorrows of life. But when we wrestle the way the laments teach us to wrestle, we remember that the Lord has dealt bountifully with us in Jesus. Wrestling helps us remember. Um, I mentioned to one of you today that uh, in undergraduate, I majored in math. I didn't really have a plan, but I was good at math, so I did what I did. Um, I've forgotten all math because I never use it, right? Uh, I'm not an engineer. I haven't taught it. Uh, so I forgot most of it. But when I was in seminary, I, somebody gave me the tutor, and I needed money. So, uh, And so I, I forgot he was... 10th grade geometry, and I've forgotten again most of it because it had been a while since 10th grade geometry. But I found, like, okay, as I took the book and kind of wrestled through it and worked through some problems, it came back pretty quickly, right? Um, when I just looked at it, I looked at a problem, I had, you know, I couldn't solve it. But again, after wrestling with it, after look, working through it a little bit, all this geometry came back. <clears throat> That's what has happened with David here. And that's what the laments are for. They're to help us wrestle through our problems so that it comes back, so that our knowledge of what we have in Jesus comes back to us, so that we remember his promises and his character, so that we do not forget, so that what we confess becomes alive in our heart again, and we can take real refuge in it. In this life, you'll have reason to lament. Uh, You will, every one of us. But we always have great reason to hope. So much so that Paul could say the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory to come. That doesn't mean the present sufferings don't really hurt. doesn't mean they're not really suffering. But it means that even as we suffer, we do so with great hope. We lament by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord God, would you teach us to walk through pain in this way because pain is inevitable and we'll face it in this life. Uh, Would you set all of our hopes on Jesus Christ? Would you expose false hopes that we have placed in things of this world? And Lord, would you solidify us in our confidence that Jesus Christ will be victorious in the end, that he will gather us to your kingdom, and that we will know eternal joy with you forever. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen.